are looking at an animal. I've got to get out of here, Birdie. And the toughest maximum security prison can't cage his lust for vengeance. The prison break. The Mauser special. The target. With this gun, there are no more hard contracts for Harry Lomart. Every hit is a sitting target. Sitting target. Sitting target. Sitting target rated R. Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, hit. Welcome to Waffle On Podcast. My name is Simon Meddings. And I'm Mark C. Kelly. Bit of a pause there, mate. Bit of a pause. I was just uh, waiting just in case you had a hiccup or something. A hiccup? <laughs> <laughs> we do, yes, we, we, well, we are on Skype yet again. This might be our last time, man, but realistically, mightn't it? I should think so, because uh, we recorded in April. Um, so hopefully May will be sitting next to each other, uh, getting a cup of coffee and one of your prize biscuits. Looking forward right. to it. I have many. <laughs> <laughs> and uh well there's a lot of look well it's quite interesting because we put a bit of a um we put a bit of a a tease out didn't we on facebook yeah and, uh, uh, there's a lot of love for oliver reed well i, I think i think the problem is as we'll talk about with oliver reed i think oliver reed is a person he's very very interesting isn't he mm, yeah and a really good actor as we'll see in this film mm. But the problem is, he phoned too many films in, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> and this yes. is the problem. I think loads of people who I like Oliver Reed, like yourself, and I do up a certain to a certain extent. You always wanted more out of Oliver Reed, and this film gives you that more. You think, oh, just think what he could have been like, and that's what I got from this film, as we'll talk about later on, won't we? Yeah, I think as well that a lot of people associate, unfortunately, associate Oliver Reed with his his slight hell raising experiences and his. He does have a, a very much a bit of an old-fashioned, especially now, it would be seriously right. view of, uh, of of men and, and women, in fact. Uh, he's, he's very much a man of the women should be at the kitchen sink kind of thing. Now, yeah. whether he fully believe that all the time or not, because he's, he's, his last wife, who was seriously he's, 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 uh, his love of his life, took no crap from him but and calmed him down very much so. But that might have been the fact that he, she was quite a few years younger than him. Yeah. And, was able to sort of like say, well, no, you know, you've got to, you've got to come with the thing because you watch some videos of Ollie, and unfortunately, there's a lot of videos of him either being drunk or pretending to be drunk, which is a lot of time he was pretending to be drunk. But unfortunately, there's a lot of things where you watch and he's on, 
there's one thing where he's on an interview with a woman's lib. It's that late, late night thing, isn't it? Yeah, and he it's, ends up... No, he's shocking, isn't it? And you think, well, you, you, even if you knew the person, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. But especially somebody who is he's trying to put the point over about feminism. <laughs> and then there's one where Shelley Winters pours a glass of water over his head. There's another one where he's incredibly drunk and on the word and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the one where he was apparently he was actually sober. And his argument was that it's, that's what they want and that's what I'm going to give them. Unfortunately, uh, you hear a lot of stuff like that with, with older actors where, you know, you think, well, no, don't, don't do that. You know, I think you can find it nowadays as well. I think Nicolas Cage fell into that. Not the hell-raising thing, but doing the thing that people want the crazy Nicolas Cage. Yeah, yeah. That Nicolas Cage did um, uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. Probably equivalent to this film, really, of acting merit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. What are we talking about? Sitting target. And what do we do before we actually talk about it? You play some form of theme tune. And this time I shall make sure we put the theme tune in as opposed to Lost in Translation, which thankfully for uh, our, our good mate and regular guest, uh, Pete Coleman, uh, told me that I'd forgot to put it in. That's now been corrected. <laughs> yeah. the, way, the main thing is, loads of people must have listened to that and no one said a bloody thing. Oh, oh, that's the snare, isn't it? That's what it must have been. <laughs> 
Oh, there's no theme tune. Ah, it's just them with their technical issues. <laughs> yeah, actually hearing the clap and, and knowing that that's how we edit it was embarrassing. Well, that was uh, that was a theme music, the main theme by Stanley Myers. Anybody who wants a soundtrack to this song, because the soundtrack is really good. It is available through Finders Keepers Records and was released in 2007. So uh, this film, Sitting Target, was directed by Douglas Hickox. Have you any um, knowledge of any of the other films that Hickox has done? No, look, to be honest about it, I this film is new on me anyway. Right, okay. Because, like, I only heard about it when I listened to that Quentin Tarantino podcast that I've been like, listening mm. to loads, and he talked about his favourite British film was Sitting Target. Because if you remember, I, like, text you on the Friday afternoon, didn't I? Have you heard of this film, Sitting Target? I'm just yeah. bought it, and you went, I've been trying to get it. Yeah. So it, that's why this was this was never meant to be in our list of films, was it? No, not at all. I mean, I, I've I've been a, a, trying to get hold of this film for about uh, five years now. I, I think probably a bit longer since I, I read the Oliver Reed biography, um, Evil Spirits. And I'd also heard somebody else talk about it a few years ago. It may well have been Mark Commode, if I'm honest with you. And I've been on eBay and I've been on um, uh Amazon and all the usual things to try and get it. And at the time, to try and buy it, it was around about £32. Yeah. And it was like, I don't really want to yeah. pay 32 quid for something, even though I really want to watch it. And I, I totally forgot about it until you turned around and said, oh, there's a new, there's a new QT, Quinta Tarantino podcast that's three hours long, which, of course, we both love. And you listened to it before me, and then I started listening to it actually the other day. And I thought, man, that, that's, that's bang on. And I then found it, I think we both found it on eBay, for like four quid or something. I mean, it's not. It's. I mean, it, there's no remastering. There's no. No, no. It is as it is. I don't think it needs remastering because I think it to adds. To be honest, mate, cool. I think it sorts it looking like shittier ITV television in the eighties, in the seventies, and the eighties. I like that look. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, and yeah, you. I mean, you are right. I mean, we'll talk about the the whole thing, but um, Hickox, I, I I didn't know much about him. Trying to review, he was born tenth uh, of January twenty nine, passed away in nineteen eighty eight. His first major film picture was entertaining Mr. Sloan in 1970. And he was 41 years old when he actually got that breakthrough. Um, yeah. And then over the next 10 years, he developed a reputation for the wit and style of his direction and, and for his taught action sequences. His work included uh, Les Bicycles, Dale Belsies in 68, entertaining Mr. Sloan, as you said. Uh, Theatre of Blood, 73. I like Theatre of Blood. Rannigan, 75. Skyrider 76 and Zulu Dawn in 1979. He also did various TV programs and uh, sadly he passed away following heart surgery in 1959, sorry, in, uh, in 59, at the age of 59. So, oh, it's a yeah, short career, isn't it? Short career, but some cracking, uh, cracking films there. You can actually see Brannigan as a, almost a little bit of an American version of Sitting Target. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I like that film. I like Zulu Dawn as well. I know it never get it never gets the you know the publicity of Zulu because of the story. But mm. actually, for a historical story, it's more important. Well, yeah, because it's the massacre, isn't it? It's the massacre of the British Army, which like had never really happened before. So it's actually more important. I like that film. It's just that it was never going to be. I, like, I know it's got a lot of hate Zulu Dawn, has, but I just I really like it. Well, people don't like things when things don't go rosy at the end, do they? I like the end of Zulu Dawn, that bit where the blokes and there's only that one British bloke left with the Union Jack. <laughs> well, the, I feel like we've just been talking about this, haven't we? With yeah. the Union flag. <laughs> Get it right. And that, 
There's that last scene in it where he's like trying to, and that really happened. That did it went down to one person with a union flag. And I just like, I just like, but you're right because it's got no heroic ending, yes. has it? It's just like wiped out. Uh, funny, funny you say now. I was, I was thinking a little bit like that when I was watching um, Black Panther yesterday. I still can't believe we've last, uh, lost Chadwick Bosman. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's such a, such a shock. Uh, there's no, there's no, that's no link to Black Panther and Zulus as well, by the way. Just no, say- no. Uh, <laughs> it's because you've been talking about Jim Davison, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we won't be doing up the elephant around the castle. That's just, <laughs> we won't be doing Jim Davison things. Um, okay, so our main cast. As we said earlier on, there's, been, there's a lot of love for Oliver Reed, especially on our Facebook group. I've always been a huge fan of Oliver Reed, and I do... I think it's because of the fact that the infamy of Oliver Reed, you know, you always, I always find people, especially actors, more interesting who are slightly off kilter, like you, you yourself, you love like Lee Marvin and, and yeah. all that. And, and Oliver Reed is definitely in the, well, he out drinks a lot of people, let's face it. Um, so Oliver Reed plays Harry Lomart. He was born Robert Oliver Reed, 13th of February, 1938, and passed away the 2nd of May, 1999. Most notable films for Ollie, The Trap in 1966. Oliver, which I think was his groundbreaking film in 68. Women in Love, which is quite hard to watch because there's some, you know, he gets his mighty Mally out and does some yeah, rest. Yeah. Uh, Hannibal Books, which I bought not long ago. <laughs> I love that film. That's I really cool. love it. I think it's such a sweet film. I really do. Uh, the Devils in 70, 1971, possibly the totally opposite of Hannibal Books. Yes. Uh, that film. Um, now, who was it who? No. You bought Tundor, man. Uh, funny enough, Condor Man isn't on the notable films list. <laughs> funny thing is, is that he actually played... Uh, Condor Man was the second film he did with Michael Crawford. Uh, they did a film with them uh, years before, in which they played brothers. Yeah. All right. Uh, the, four, no, the Three and the Four Musketeers, which he played Athos, which is... Brilliant in that. Uh, he was in Tommy, The Brood, uh, Castaway, which he was drunk throughout the whole of filming. Um, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Funny Bones, and of course his last film was Gladiator, the Ridley Scott film in which he played Proximo. He passed away in Malta um, doing um, uh, um, sit-ups and arm wrestling with a load of sailors, drinking shitloads of rum. Apparently yeah. he liked to have gone out. Um, I disagree with that. I think he had. A, I think Gladiator was his, his comeback film. Um, from being in the in the doldrums in the in the uh, in the eighties and the nineties, I think it's uh, I think it's such a shame, really, because he actually sucks off in Gladiator. He really does. He's the best thing in it. Well, I think as well. Like it was, I think it was quite a brave thing for Ridley Scott to pick him as well, wasn't it? Because I know he's he was like he wasn't that popular in Hollywood, was he? Because he caused because he meant to be in Cutthroat Island, wasn't he? Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was meant to be in Cutthroat Island, and he was sacked from Cutthroat Island. Did he upset Gina Davis? No, he got his cock out in the middle of a, in a, in a in a restaurant or something when all the actors were there. <laughs> probably not, not probably not good in Hollywood at that time. No, that is it. To be honest with you, I think Gina Davis wasn't Gina Davis the um, executive producer of that film. Yeah, and she's quite a powerful woman in in Hollywood, so she's not going to stand for that. Is she? Rightly so. You can't be just getting your Chap out, I think it? this was a problem with a lot of them kind of uh, actors in that period where Hollywood changed in the 90s, where it become, I suppose they'd call it woke now, but I don't. I'd say it's just being proper. <laughs> yeah, it's just being, being decent, professional. Really. Yeah. And I think a lot of these old actors, they didn't find, they couldn't, didn't know where the place because they were like quite wild men. And the days of wild men were gone. Well, they were, it was gone, weren't it, by the late 90s? 
Well, you think about it, in Gladiator, you had uh, David Hemmings in the film yeah. as well, who was a bit of a hellraiser in his time. He passed away shortly after this film. Richard Harris was in it yeah, as well. And Russell Crowe was just as bad. He really. was, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's funny, you don't, you don't hear much... Um, you don't hear Russell Crowe talk about Oliver Reed much. I don't know if they they got they didn't on. Didn't get on that well, did they? Oh, he was looking at some people. People thought they were going to, but they never did, did they? No. I think too much ego there, isn't it? Well, I think I think he Russell Crowe draw, was drawn more towards Richard Harris, wasn't he? Yeah. And not he liked the poetry Reed. side of Harris, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. As as Oliver Reed was like, and of course David Hemmings as well, who's a, a big fan of. I I I know and. We're not one to talk because as we all get older, we all get a bit saggy in the face and stuff like that. But David Hemmings, when he was in Blow Up, good-looking fella. He was a very good-looking bloke then. Fella. Why, what happened with his eyebrows? Yeah, what happened with them eyebrows? I mean, because it's not like he did it for the film. He had them eyebrows throughout loads of films. Yeah. Um, What's the film that I really like? Uh, Last Orders. It's like it in that. We should yeah. do Last Orders, actually. That's I just a, think it's, yeah, I think it's quite good how Malcolm McDowell stayed relevant, wasn't it? I think yeah. he was the he did the right thing in his career. He knew he weren't going to be this big film star anymore, so he just worked and did, you know he was in bloody Blue Thunder and all well, Blue Thunder. Yeah. But that's it. He always kept himself sort of up to date, didn't he? Mm. And only still acting now because he was in that. I know it's been cancelled now. That thing with Simon Pegg off Amazon. He was he was really good in that, and he's like eighty three or something now. And but he still fun. looks really good. And he was a drinker in that, weren't he, Malcolm McDowell, in the 60s? Yeah, and he was in, what, he was in Star Trek, and he was in, yeah. uh, let's face it, he was in one of our favourite films, another film which not many people know of, Gangster Number One. Yeah, and Caligula. <laughs> and, uh, let's, no. I need to give you that back, actually. I've yeah, got... well, that was about that. He's... Like I said, obviously we should do that as a podcast, but it's pretty hard to talk about. <laughs> Imagine if we did it as a, a commentary cast. <laughs> <laughs> We'd just be really going, oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's John Gilgood, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jill, uh, Jill St. John as Pat Lomat, um, Jill St. John born, uh, Jill Arlene Oppenheim on August the 19th, 1940. Most well known, of course, as playing Tiffany Case, um, the first American Bond girl in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. She'd also been in uh, several other stuff, uh, including The Concrete Jungle, Who's Minding the Stone, and The Oscar. You know what? I think she's amazing in this, right? And I, you know, because her, her, her English accent is really good, isn't it? Yeah, really good. You and that's what I, when I was watching it, I, I was, you know, halfway through it, because I don't, when I try to watch a film for the first time, I try not to have sat my phone out, like Googling everything. <laughs> I only do that the second time I watch it, because I just want to watch the film. Yeah. And I was thinking halfway through, who is that woman? Because you <laughs> never think it was the same woman, because you think her accent's so good. You're thinking, they're not going to have a big American star in a, because it's a small role. Mm. How on earth she ever got that role? It's really odd, isn't it, that there's someone like that? Well, I mean, I think they really landed on their feet with the whole of this cast, really, because it's it's a really low-budget film. There's no question about it. Yeah. And she'd done Diamonds... Had she done Diamonds Are Forever at this point? Yes, I think she had, because... Uh, I don't imagine... top three bun girl she's. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's the one who has the cassette tape in her back of her bikini, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles Dance goes, uh, goes, showing a bit more cheek than usual. 
<laughs> classic, classic. Um, but no, she is absolutely fantastic. The whole of her acting in this film, and she doesn't do an awful lot. Again, it's another one of these films in which she's acting mainly with her facial expressions. The worry that Harry's going to be coming along and killing her. I mean, we'll go for the whole film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ian McShane turns up, and this is Verdi Williams. I tell you what, I don't know what Ian McShane's been drinking. But you know what, that man doesn't age. <laughs> and also, is he ever not had a mullet? I know. I know. Do you know who? You know who I thought he looks a little bit like in this film is um, Lenny Gobba. Who's, who's Lenny Gobba? Um, yeah, our Beckinsale. Yeah, he looks a bit like Richard Beckinsale, doesn't he? And he's a lot more dangerous in this film than you expect. That's the interesting thing about oh, it. It's that thing in it because a bit. Oh, we'll talk as you go on. But you think yeah. he's the nice guy, the nicer one out the two. Yeah. Because he's not violent and all that, isn't it? The beginning he won't. But I don't want to give away because we're going to go through the film, aren't we? But <laughs> he's definitely always had a mullet, though. I don't think I've ever saw Ian McShane without a mullet. No, but I mean, he's like, he's just sort of like, he's a good-looking fellow, and and for his age now. You know, I mean, we're not going to be because we've obviously we've already covered Ian McShane when we did our um, sexy beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know more about Ian McShane. Head towards our sexy beast episode, and the same with Edward Woodward, who plays Inspector Milton in this film. Uh, if you want to know more about Iwawa, then yeah. go and check out our Equalizer and Callum. I mean, there's no doubt. A lot of the film, this film was like filmed not in sequence. No, no. I think there was things shot. All in one day, I think, probably, while we were, did his stuff in one day, probably, didn't he? Yeah, because he's wearing the same suit. And yeah. uh, also, he's like, he was filming Callan towards the end of Callan. And Callan, the movie, came out two years later than this. Yeah. Um, even when he's hardly in it. But at this point, Edward Woodward is one of the biggest television stars of British television. You know? Yeah. And it, when, when was Wicker Man? What year was Wicker Man? 75? 73, weren't 73. So he's close to doing Wicker Man as well. Um, another huge uh, actor in this as well. He's called Frank Finlay as Marty Gold, born Francis Finlay, uh, CBE. Uh, 6th of August, 26th to 30th of January, 2016. Only recently passed away, of course. He was most well known for his uh, supporting role as Largo in uh, Lance Olivier's film, Othello. And of course, he also had a leading role in the 1971 version of Casanova. Um, wow. There's a quite, a, I mean, I'll just, I'm not going to go into detail with these uh, people, but. Um, Freddie Jones plays McNeil. Um, did you recognize the prison warden accomplice, the person who gives him the keys to get out? Did you no. recognize that man? No, no, who's that? Played by Mike Pratt, who was the lead uh, in Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Ah, oh, bloody right, now you say that, yeah. Mm. Uh, you had Robert Russell as the other prison warder, and fleetingly as Lomart's neighbor. June Brown from EastEnders. <laughs> That's what this cast is. A really weird bunch of people in a film, isn't it? It's really odd, really, when you think about it. Major stars. You've like, yeah, I've never ever seen her anything apart from being Doc uh, Cotton of you. Yeah. I, I've seen her in a few things, but they're all kind of like very small, um, you know, roles. Nothing, nothing huge. She didn't look. I'll give you some facts. I know, yeah, literally, he's just opening the door and going, I don't know what you're on about, and closing the door. She gets major credit. Uh, I'll give you the uh, little facts, because I know you like these. Um, yeah. There's only a few of them anyway, because this is such a small film. Um, the prison sequences were filmed, I bet you recognise the prison, uh, were filmed in the abandoned uh, Kilmainham jail yeah. in Dublin, which, of course, is also used for the Italian job 
and McVicker. Yeah, it's such a fame. I think there's loads of... I saw another film, film and I can't remember the name of it now as well. Yeah. I wondered if Paddington 2 was filmed there. Before. Oh. Might have been, might have been. Thinking about it, yeah, because it's got that really famous, because that's how prisons are done then, with the circle bit in the middle, didn't they, where they could see all the... Yeah, and the big stair going down the... Down yeah. The... Uh, Sitting Target was one of the first British films to be given an X certificate for its violence alone. In spite of that, the BBFC required a few cuts to be made before allowing the film to be released. Uh, most fans agree that Oliver Reed was far better cast as a psychopathic gangster than Richard Burton was from Villain. Yeah, I like villain. It's just, it's, it's very, it's too. The problem with that film is too much of an actor in that, Richard Burton, and he can't play a cockney. Play like no. a cockney guy. You just, you always believe it's someone doing like drama. You always think that. That was another Ian McShane film, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I well, think he had a mullet in that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think something to hold on to in villain. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Mauser Schlafer with telescopic sight used by Oliver Reed was created by Bapti and Co, a British company that provided prop guns to the film industry in the UK. The same Mauser prop gun was used in Brannigan and The Disappearance. All oh, right. It's a bloody good gun and all, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I do love it. It's a, what is it? It's a, what you call it? Isn't it? Um, not a smiter, is it? It's a, not a derringer. I used to name it a gun. I can't think of the name of the gun now. But it's really cool, isn't it? And it's like the biggies. It's not the kind of gun you'd think you'd see in a film like that. But you'd think of like a, like a revolver, wouldn't you? British, yeah. it's like you'd be a revolver. But it's like an automatic. It's not a wolfer, is it? No, no. It's it's like a, um, well, it is like, a, really, it's the same. It's just an automatic machine gun, isn't it? Almost like a machine gun, yeah. Which which gives me the doubt of the um, use of sniper range. Yeah, no. I was going to say you, there's no way he could do that shot in that. No. No way from all the way over there. No. no way. Impossible. It's absolutely, it's impossible. But, you know, let's, let's not go too much into that. Now, what I love about this film straight away, the opening sequence, one, I love a clock pendulum. Give me a clock pendulum anytime. Yeah, that. that must be, excuse me, that must be a nightmare in jail if you have a clock pendulum just ticking backwards and forwards, just to remind you how you're doing time. Yeah. Maybe it's a metaphor for it, I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tell me what your thoughts are when you first see Oliver Reed doing his push-ups. I, that's what's interesting about that thing, because when you first put this film on, and you don't know what the hell he's doing, it doesn't make any sense why he's doing it, does it? And no. I like stuff like that. It's like, what are you doing up there? And it's like, not normal press-ups. No, <laughs> it's no. like, in the, in the air. Because yeah. you think, what's he doing that for? Is that just to make him look tough? But well, it does pay later on. It does come back, doesn't it? It does come back, yeah. But yeah. it's unbelievable that he's doing a press-up. He probably was probably doing a press-up, weren't he? Oh, I think I think most likely he was. I mean, he was doing wall press-ups, floor press-ups, and then, as you just said then, he was in the ceiling on two <laughs> steam bars doing press-ups <laughs> in the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is the amazing thing about Oliver Reed. He's, at, he's not, at this point, he's 70, 71. He's not a slim guy. He's started to get his. He's got his barrel chest. He's always like a big fella. He's always but, big, weren't he? Yeah, I mean, he looks down, and you just think if you run into him, you're just going to bounce off him, and yeah, that's the thing. I think he was quite tall as well, six foot, weren't he? I think so. Yeah, he weren't that small. Well, you, you see him standing next to Ian McShane, and he, I don't think I think Ian McShane is probably about my height in here, about yeah. five, something like that. Um, yeah. So we see Ollie or Harry, as he's known in this film, doing the, the push-ups, and and there is a link to this uh, a little bit later on. Um, he's obviously banging on about he, there's pictures of his his wife. You find out is his wife could be his girlfriend, but his wife Jill, uh, Jill St. John. 
everywhere around his cell. He watches her coming in. And Birdie, who's the Ian McShane character, is in the cell next to him. And at first, you're not too sure if these two get on, do you? Because he doesn't really talk to anybody. Harry doesn't. And are you led to believe that they've worked together before? Do they do know? know I was about to say, the only thing with this film, I think, the logic does not make that much sense. No. The end, as well as we get to the end, the sting in the tail is never set up, really, is no. it? It's like, no. like, if you wrote this film now, I think that beginning bit, it'd be wrote a lot more where they'd be close, wouldn't they? Yeah. Where they'd been in the same orbit with each other. You know, he knew about the job that he'd done and they're all, they all knew each other. But like you said at the beginning, it comes across that they don't know each other. Yeah, and then, then in the back, all the way in the film, they're talking about the firm. And yeah. the firm will help us out. So yeah. you then kind of get the inclination that actually they do know each other because yeah. they're talking about the firm, they're talking about people they both know. But right at the beginning of the film, and maybe that's a good, a good way of like making you think about it. You know, instead of instead of everything being, you know, instead of it all being laid out in front of you straight away, which films are these days, you know. I you think, yeah, to... I think if they did that now, that beginning bit, it'd be wrote very differently. I think, like yeah. I said, they'd have it where they'd put loads of little things in there for you, wouldn't they? Yeah. you go, oh, that's why you said that, or that's why you did this. It doesn't do that in this, does it? No, no, it really doesn't. It doesn't do it. You, you are made to think. I think that's the thing, like what you just said just then as well, about, you know, it... We, and we both get annoyed by people looking at the phone when they're watching the films. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, this is a film where, even though it's a, it's a short film, it's a low-budget film, you can't take your eyes off it. it no, no, you can't. The snippets of information come through. And, and I think what I'd say as well to any listeners out there who haven't watched this film, watch the film before we do the podcast. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll, we, we'll, I'll do a, um, a, yeah, a, a spoiler thing. On because this. it will spoil it, won't it? It will spoil it. And what, just as well, just what we've been talking about there, when it has the sort of sting in the tail twist, if you whatever you want to call it, it'll ruin it. So if you're listening to this now and you haven't seen it, stop. Now, put the <laughs> film on. Put the film on and come back to us in a bit. Yeah, yeah, come, come, yeah, 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 because it is a great... A lot of our podcasts are not like that. I think you can watch them, but this one, if you haven't seen it, it would spoil it. It's like doing... It'd be like doing, uh, I don't know, The Sixth Sense, wouldn't it, if you hadn't saw the film and listened to the podcast first. Yeah. That's sometimes the biggest twist I can think of in a film. You'd think, that's, well, you'd give me that away, just ruin the film. This mm. will ruin the film if you haven't seen it before. Yep, so turn off now. If you're still with us, then, uh, well, you your fault. Yeah, because I didn't see the twist coming at the end. Though, no, I didn't. In no. any way, mate, it's not ever set up. Is no, it? no, there's no. Comes out of nowhere. What? There's no hint at all. Is there? Um, you find out, or you see Mike Pratt, the prison guard, now as well. Standard, standard, uh, nasty prison guards. Yeah. Uh, you know, which probably right, right in the, night, the early nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You find out as well that Harry's been inside for five months, and this is her first visit. So there's obviously stuff going on. Because of that, you know, where you think, well, bloody hell, I mean, five months is, and she goes, I weren't allowed to see, uh, and he goes, uh, yeah. I weren't told that, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you, you do think it's all all building in. Now, this was mentioned, QT mentioned this on the, uh, and I think that the, the uh, I can't remember what the podcast was called that is on with them two blokes, but that, their film knowledge is absolutely cracking. Oh, oh. You, know, you know what, right, if you haven't, you know what's another amazing one that they do, 
They do, do do one about 1970s kung fu films in Tarantino. That's amazing as well. Oh, really? Right. So much where I've been watching kung fu films nonstop for the last three weeks. But that is brilliant. Their knowledge, meant is amazing. More than Tarantino. And that's saying something. He's saying something, yeah. But they brought up a thing, which I, I actually wrote down. I'm, I'm going from my pointer script here now. The reflection shots in this. Oh. They're talking to each other. It's not just... It's not just a standard, you can slightly see the face. They move the camera around so many times that you can get double reflections, you get a low reflection, you get a high reflection. It's so well directed. This is the cinematographer, whoever the cinematographer is yeah. on this. I, I don't know who he is, but. And it's like. Cracking. It's got a lot of sort of what I call uh, film grammar in it, where, in, like, like if, if you ever see like a spider web on a film. Yeah. Or the spider. Basically, that's the, the director or whatever putting that the, someone's got a mental problem. That's where that comes from. Right. Now, mirrors, it comes from the original expressionism of the 1930s, where it means there's two sides. Mm. And that gives it makes sense yeah. with the ending, doesn't it? Yes. At the beginning, I was thinking, oh, they're amazing shots. They are. But they're a bit over. I don't know if it's known it. But then when it comes about, when it's all about double crossing, Mm, it makes yeah. bloody sense, doesn't it? There's two yeah. sides to her. That's what that's all about, isn't it? Now, when she she turns around and tells him that she wants a divorce um, because she's she's pregnant and she's met another man, um, he punches straight through the the centre yeah. voice thing and strangles her. Now, that's a mass, mad scene. The only bit of that scene that I don't like is when they drag Harry away. Ian McShane's Harry Birdie's kind of looking at her, right? Yeah. And he, he look. He, He's just kind of, he's bent over on the side of that, looking yeah. like a bit of a hunchback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of looking like what's going on, but there's no hint. Now, I thought he, there might have been a bit of a hint going on he here. He knows what's going on. Yeah, he knows what's going on. And there's no hint whatsoever, which is probably good because it leads us up to the thing. And they throw Harry into solitary confinement, which, you know, he's bloody horrible, isn't it? I mean, it don't look good at all. There's no things about it. <laughs> Like we've said before, men's seventies in Britain. Oh yeah, it is. A, it, it was. We'll say it was a shit hole. <laughs> it was. Move to the to your screen so I can hear you a bit better. But it's like, but it, we grew up in that world. We yeah. remember this world being quite grim like that. But if it looked cool, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was grimy. It's it was grimy. grimy in that. But it's don't know. It just had a bit of a bit of earthiness, and especially like cinema. This looks like you'd be watching the Sweeney, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Not um, Sweeney. He, 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 I mean, I'll say this now before we get to it, but obviously they get out of jail. But the um, the Winstanley and York Road estates in Battersea feature extremely prominently throughout this film as a setting for many of the action sequences that go on. A lot of it is also filmed around British Rail, various railway stations, and we remember all of these kind of things: the carriages. Yeah. Everything about it, and London at this point is, and Birmingham was was probably worse because it's an industrial city. Horrible. It's just as horrible. It, it really is, and and this is what we we grew up in. That's the main thing. Now we know he knows now that he's like he looks like he's a broken man. Birdie turns around and says, he goes, I've got to get out of here. Uh, I'm going to kill her. And he turns around and goes, a woman gave us away. Remember that? And he says, I'm going to kill her. Now that's the first inclination that something's happened in the past that a woman gave them away. Yeah. Now, you don't quite know who that is and when that is, do you? That's never brought up again in the whole film. 
as far as I remember. I think it's a bit like, I think now you think about it, that that Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs used that where it was after. Yeah. And you never, you don't ever need to see it because it's like, and I think, think about this. He probably might might have watched this and thought about that. That's a good thing to start after the crime. Yeah. And dealing with the aftermath of the crime. But you're right, that's the first time when you think, all right, were they a gang together? Mm. You don't really know because even the firm... It's never really talked about. Is it that there's one, you see the one later on, but that's it, they never, you, you don't know the world they're living in. You don't really know what kind of criminal he is. Well, he's a murderer. He's got, he he's is got, a murderer. That's, yeah. he said, because he comes off, he shot the guard, didn't he? Yeah, and that's where he, he comes give up the... And I think it was, wasn't it, hasn't it been done for, it's, it was classed as murder, but then manslaughter, because she turns around and says that it's going to be 13 years before you come out and I can't wait that long. Yeah. It's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like fair dinkum, really. You can't expect the, the, the young woman to, to wait for that long when, you know. And he's been inside before, and, he, you know, he, he's going to clearly, he's going to go in and he's going to go in again. Now, we now get this scene, this whole scene here, which is the build up and the performance of the prison escape. This is where we first see the reason why he was doing his, well, you know, the, the bars in the ceiling coming to use when he knocks the guard out. What's your, do you think this is the best prison escape ever on film? Ooh. I don't know. I think it might be, mine might be Escape from Alcatraz. Oh, you know what? They said that on that podcast, and yeah, I think, yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I think it's for so t- cool. I think for tension, though, this is the best because I think in, in, in Escape from Alcatraz, the whole of the film, Escape from Alcatraz, it's called Escape from Alcatraz because that's what the film's about. Yeah. So it's, it's a 90 minute version of them figuring out how to get out, making yeah, the yeah. pasta dolls, and, and all the other, and Patrick McGo in there. That didn't escape. But this is only what maybe five minutes, and in that five minutes, that business game, you can't get much more tense than that. Because no, because it sort of comes out of nowhere as well, and it's so immaculately planned, and it's got the corny thing that was still like a hangover from Paris, weren't it? Where there'd be like a really posh English bloke who's in charge. Yeah, Freddie Freddie Jones. Because. It, the class system was still rife then, where you know we had to be told to do by a posh man. We yeah. could work that ourselves. <laughs> still goes on. Still yes. goes on these days. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, you, you know, they, they get out. The Mike Mike Pratt's character um, helps them out there. I do like the fact that Birdie t- batters his security guard and then gets the piss pot on top of his head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. One, and, one final insult. And you've got to say, it's not the most well-guarded prison, is it? No, no. I mean, <laughs> it's not. They're all having cups of tea, cups of yeah. roti lee. Swinging um, around in the middle yeah. of the court. <laughs> no one once looks out the window. <laughs> um, they kill the dog with the with a brick, which is quite horrific. I don't like that. I don't like animals, even if they're not really. It just upsets me. I like yeah, it. So they kill the dog. Now then, that scaffolding climb, was pretty raw. Yeah, not... and I don't even think there was bad stuntmen, which was no. the as we talk about a lot, which was the seventies British experience, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I don't. Basically, not... where it was one stuntman, he just wore different wigs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, including if he had to do a stuntman for a black actor. Way <laughs> it goes. But I think they must have done that because there's no way they could have cut that in with people doing it. I don't yeah. believe. Obviously not the swinging on the rope, but <laughs> to put an actor on there. I think. I mean, I think the crossing over on the rope is clearly a stuntman, but I think the swinging is is pretty good because it does look like Oliver Reed. 
and it's obviously clearly like the setup is not as high as he actually is. But when That's that a big bloke rope, to be swinging round on a rope, isn't it? I know. But when that rope slips, and you think, oh no, how's he going to get there? I mean, again, laws of physics. Not one hundred percent sure if you'd be able to get that high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I was say yeah. From a very little swing, it gets a lot of purchase on it, doesn't it? Oh God, yeah. For a big fellow as well. Um, they they realise as well that the Freddie Jones character he tells them to go on the motorway, and um, they realise that of course if there's a girl on the motorway in a hot car they're going to get arrested, and then but and then they say well we can easily get him back as well, and they decide to say well you never see that phone call so you're not one hundred percent sure that actually happens do you? Yeah yeah yeah, and also one of the big I think one of the proper this is the bit where they're in that van driving down the road all of them escaping sort of go. This is one of the first things where female characters in this film are not that... No. Are not that well. <laughs> right, I think there's only three major women in this. One of them is just, just happens to be a woman lying in a van and they're all having sex with her. Who's that? Yeah. Then the other woman is later on in the, the place in, like, uh, Kensington yeah. where they get they kidnap the woman and then she just happens to have sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> McShack's like, you just put a gun to me head. Well, have sex? Yeah, all right. Yeah. And then... The other one is the main woman. Is she's lucky two faced? <laughs> yeah. like, like I said, if you're the woman, you ain't gonna watch like this. Is a film I can never watch with Emma. She no. would never. She would never. It's like it's all the women in this. Does basically about sex or t- yeah. That was the seventies. It wasn't. It was quite a loutish time in Britain, wasn't it? It was. It was a bit, and it's a fairly uncomfortable. But also, what's good about that scene in the band is that the Oliver Reed's character is not comfortable with that at all. Uh, no, you know, I mean, I would, <laughs> no, Freddie Jones gets in there, he, he gets he's, right away. Yeah, he's all over, and then he's like, I'll have a go as well. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> Ian McShane does the sloppy, you know, I mean, he's just not nice. I mean, he's just not I nice. Mean, he's love joy, isn't he? That's the... <laughs> love joy, yeah, well, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they, they have their way in the van. <laughs> yeah. um, then they go to the warehouse to pick up the 9mm Mauser special, which doesn't go That's a Mauser, yeah. Um, Birdie doesn't like guns and he says that this is not how we do things um, which is kind of like it's quite interesting really and when they decide to get away they get on the boat and they say there's a line in this where he turns around and says tomorrow never happens which is a psychological thing but it yeah. is actually true what this film goes on about yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Edward Woodward pops up as if he's sort of like um, you know out of nowhere which is quite, which I quite like. He's knocking on the door, asking people where, you know, do they know where anyone's gone? And um, and June Brown, this is where we get to see Doc Cotton from EastEnders, very briefly. Yeah, and, but how horrible did them flats look? Yeah, I know. That, hey, that, I remember yeah. my nan used a block of flats like that, and after he's going there on a Friday night, and I used to dread it, because our dad, I'd go in the bottom, and my nan lived on the top floor. Oh. Right, it was horrible. Me and my brother, our dad had like, put us in the lift, and then go home. <laughs> so thing, things were very different then, weren't they? <laughs> right? Then you just go up. And I remember thinking, being scared to death. This one, I'm scared of lifts to this day. Yeah. I never really? lifts. So I'm petrified of them because of them. It reminds me of being a kid and it's stinking of bloody piss. Usual. Yeah. And then going up and then my nan being on the top for us. I used to drink. And I got stuck in there once. And it like, since then, it's horrible. But oh. now... This idea of putting British people in high-rise flats was just horrible, weren't it? Yeah, I, I remember when our friend Chris lived in one, and I went to visit him one day, and uh, and there was all blood, there was all blood in the, the reception and in the lift, and it was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this don't people have always got to remember this is this is a time when Billy Clapworth Collins was being, <laughs> yeah, 
They didn't have to go anywhere. To, they didn't have to have sets no. in Britain. It was horrible time. And yeah. it's like, it's just so grim. But I read, this is sort of my, one of my favourite scenes is the Iwa Oliver Reed meet off. I think that's not coming up in it, in it. Yeah, it is. Because they, they do the whole thing where like, he talks about, um, you know, looking after them. Now, I wrote here in my notes, time scale, question mark, question mark, question yeah, mark. Yeah, again. Because this does, nothing nothing of this kind of like makes sense. So I presume he's meant to have been in probably solitary confinement for a month, I reckon. There yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Looks, or maybe three weeks because he hasn't got a massive beard or anything. And then you're probably thinking out there planning to get the, 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 the getaway. That's got to be at least a month in planning. That seems to knock the plan up really quick. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I think I think you're meant to kind of automatically assume that this is at least a couple of months down the road from the initial kind of kind of yeah. thing. You can't, you can't just come up with these ideas, you know, in one go. And I reckon they've been on the run longer than what that what you're meant to think because they're riding up and down on the railway line for for that. You think about it a day. I reckon they probably they're probably trying to work out how they're going to get around things because they're running out of money. Until Ian McShane pulls out, I think. And there's 200 grand that Oliver Reed's got hidden somewhere, which we'll come to in a minute. Which, when you think about it, 200 grand in 1971. Uh, a lot of money. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. It's, not, it's American Express, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. they're having that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they go to a. a, a I've put the did they ramshack her house? You, you, you think that, then you're at the site, you go, well, who's ramshacked the house? Who's been in there? You, you know, there's no thing. This comes in the twist later on, which we'll yeah, yeah. get to. Um, classic British well. You find out that her boyfriend has run off, which is interesting. Um, and then you get Woodward wanting to know why the cops haven't turned up. And this is where we get, of course, that classic fight on the balcony in which we get Which these. is a brilliant fight because yeah. that's obviously them two doing it. Yeah, what I was saying that podcast, he's a big man to be. These are big men who are fighting on air. Yeah. In many ways. <laughs> and they're throwing themselves round over the edge of the balcony, ain't they? I love that. I love that scene. And I like the way that Edward Woodward gives it as good as he gets in that. Yeah. Obviously, he wins at the end because he's, he's it's like, just to, it's like, that's not what you think coppers are going to Coppers are not going to be like that these days, are they? No. Well, let's have a fucking punch up on the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but he's on his own. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. One, they, they failed on looking after a, uh, There's no cops downstairs. There's no cops yeah. in the hallway. He's, and he's, he's on about that, you know. Yeah. He's he's like, would they send the lead detective out to do that? <laughs> would they send out like a copper? Well, that's what that's the usual thing, isn't it? It's like it's like why it's like the thing in Mash, yeah. you know, when suddenly they they end up sending out the lead the lead surgeons. To go on a, a helicopter ride, and you think, well, that wouldn't happen, would he? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is that the way he's going to the hospital? But you're right about the fight. The fight is amazing on that balcony. This is where we do get to see the infamous stuntman with a slightly different wig on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, that, that he's being pushed over. I mean, there's one scene as well where you see Ollie Reed on top of Edward Woodward pushing him over the edge of that thing. You get a crane, the crane shot coming over. It's a high drop. It really yeah. is. And then, and then, he's, and then, the, but the only reason why Edward Woodward doesn't get thrown off because you know for a while that he would throw him off that building because he's the one who sent him down in the first place. Yeah, he's, yeah. These sirens come in, didn't they? Yeah, it is. Yeah, he's escaping. You get that classic scene then with the wicked police bikes chasing him through those those um, the sheet the bed sheets on the the thing. Well, this was a bit in that QT podcast that got me to watch it. Because yeah. I love scenes like that, and the way he talked about it is an amazing scene, and it's so we've not much 
It's like it's with this film, they got a lot out of not a lot, I think they? Oh, yeah. It's all, could have no budget, obviously. It's actually used style. Mm. And I think sometimes that, and like, I even love the helmets at the, the, the place they're in. They're quite, there's something quite medieval about them. Mm. And they're like, but their motorbikes are either terrible as well. Oh, well, well, I mean, there's a good bit of stunt work. The stunt work in this is done by René Jardin, who did the, um, the uh, driving stuff for the Italian job. Oh, yeah. That's really, it's all really quite well done, well choreographed, and quite rough as well, you know, like the police chasing going on. I noticed as well that as, as, there's a point as well where, they, where Harry goes across the, the, the line even, even more by killing the police officer. Yeah, yeah. Of blood. And, and, and then Birdie turns around and goes, well, you're a cop killer now. Which of course is like the whole of this thing is is vengeance. He's not. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to get away with this. Um, Birdie turns up in the blue, a classic nineteen seventies blue Ford van. Yeah, <laughs> classic. <isn't it>? Yeah. <laughs> and then they go to uh, Marty's apartment, and Marty is played, of course, by Frank Finney here. It's a really weird thing. This is where they turn up in this. This is the well-known street in London, which is been in loads of films, in it. Scenes. Oh yeah, I mean it's, it's filmed. It's the the scene in the na- Jamie Oliver's Naked Chef, where his apartment is, you know, it's a, a quite an expensive street now. Like a lot of places in London, you know, in the Docklands were all crap. They know that one of the most. You know, expensive- I know from the film Scandal about Christine Keeler. Yeah, it's like it's in loads of stuff. I bet that must be worth some bloody money now. That that road must have been. Oh, Talking about scandals, right? Slightly. Uh, as we've had recent revelations about Boris Johnson, yet another affair. Do you remember the Profumo uh, uh, scandal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the difference, is there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it sums up how times are different now, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, can you can you imagine anywhere else would accept their prime minister yeah. from having various affairs, leaving leaving the wife, girlfriends and children to fend for themselves, and he's not even British? I think, the, I, think the only t- I think the only place where that might do it all is probably in France, with a, probably even a pat on the back. <laughs> <laughs> there were, because the seat there, like... It's like being a man in Italy, but the sky. There's something slightly more romantic about the the Gaelics doing it than no Boris Johnson in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, go, going back. Um, <laughs> oh, Frank Finney's Marty. I love this bit where they 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 get in touch with him, and then they know he's going to phone up that girl, and he's going to say, "Right, pack your stuff. We're going to come on." Uh, I do as well. Like the the uh, the bath scene. Where Harry gets in the bath, and he's, he 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 obviously is liking the attention, but he it's really weird. This is because moralistically, he's a murderer. He's a yeah. really nice person. Yet there's something I don't know. I don't know how to put it. He, he doesn't want to use a woman, does he? He doesn't want to abuse her, he, which is ironic because he know he strangled Jilson John early on, but he won't have casual sex at all. Yeah, but this is like, there's that moment of a bat. When he gets in the bat, it's like a moment of tranquility, isn't it? Yeah. You can see him mulling over in his head. I've always say, is this the bit where this is like the the crux of the film that he's thinking about, say, should he go any further? Yeah. I think that's on his mind. Should he go any further or should he go back? Not go back to prison, but there's a hold back. Because mm. he starts thinking about... Loving that, doesn't he? That, that she's actually in love with the Frank Finley character. She loves him, and then it's like he won't do that because this is where you start realizing that Birdie is as much of a scumbag as he is. Yeah, because it's a big feel. This you think Birdie is the the funny one that yeah, you know, it's just his mate. Mm. He's the one always holding him back, isn't he? 
don't get the gun, don't do it. But this is the time where you realise that he's just as bad. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, because that, again, that scene with the, what we've heard is such a weird scene. They'd never do that in a film now, would they? No, no, because I mean, clearly she's a bit of a gangster. Gangster's mole. A gangster's mole. An old nineteen twenties anime, a gangster's mole, because. She doesn't particularly... I mean, you say that she loves the Frank Pini, the Mardi character. I don't... I think she, she does a little bit, but she doesn't, also doesn't particularly care, clearly. Yeah. Because he just... He, the birdie turns around and says, right, you know, uh, we, we share everything we do. Now, nothing's happened between Harry and her. Yeah. She's just been nice to me in the back. And so off you go. And she just automatically goes and goes into the bedroom and lies down. It's and, a really but, weird... It's really weird. But I suppose there is that thing that this is the early 70s in which she's a... She's part of the gangster kind of thing. But it's really disturbing because she clearly yeah. doesn't give a shit. Either. This one says, this, you know, like, I ain't bothered about things like that because I love Straw Dogs. Yeah. You know, Straw Dogs is the ultimate film that is really, really questionable. Yeah. The whole idea what that film is all about. Like, you know, the, the scene we're on about in Straw Dogs. The rape. Right? The, the rape scene, you know, that she wants it, which is really a horrible thing to talk about. Mm. But... It's in this as well. I just think there was a bit of a seam of misogyny running through a lot of British cinema then, weren't there? I think, I think you're right. In there. society, should I say. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, when I first saw Straw Dogs, I already knew about the controversy about that scene. So I automatically was looking at it to see if that's what... I didn't, I didn't get that at all. I, I don't know about you, but I watched that as just a really horrible rape scene. There's not one... I think there's a small scene where she looks at a guy exactly. in a... It's, but I don't... I don't know. I don't think that... I don't yeah, think that... No, I, no, interesting, though. Sam Peckinpah talked about... Oh, you know, I love Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. Now, he said... Now, that scene with where she's looking at the bloke doing the gardening mm. and she gives him the command. That's where that all comes He didn't want that in the film. He never wanted it. He never wanted it. But the writer said we need it. Mm. Because we've got to show that she's inviting him in. But some people didn't. He wanted it about brutality. That The reason Dustin Hopman flips out is because someone's just like coming to his house and took his woman and mm. he's going to stand up for her. But, but because of that bit there, it's really, really not very nice that she sort of wants him to... Because well, the writer said, oh, it's about being ravished. Right. It's not about being ravished. It's not. I, I suppose you can also look at it as a point of, of though, you could invite somebody in for a coffee. That doesn't give you the right to come in and have sex with you. Exactly. So, so I think it probably adds more, more to it because especially, especially now in modern, in, in, in and rightly so in modern day and age where women can feel like they're more, I wouldn't say they feel safe or anything, but they, they feel like they can actually speak out more than they yeah. could years ago without feeling like they're going to be ignored or, Anything like that, as then when Straw Dogs was made, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you flirting or you know, smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you smile at somebody, it doesn't give them the right to come in and say, Right, I'm gonna rape you, does it? So, I think it's a very important thing. I think the writer is right on that. I don't, maybe it's not, I don't know if, if it's filmed the right way because I don't get I don't get any inclination during that scene that she's enjoying it by any means. It's Suzanne George, isn't it? I think, is yeah, Susan... there's no there's no sign of her enjoying that at all. And I think if if there was a bit which I think is in another film, not irreversible, there's something else, I can't remember what it is now, where it changes from, yeah, and it was, it was before 1979 because Monty Python make a joke of it when he turned around and goes, you mean you was right? Well, at first. At first, yeah. 
<laughs> and I think that's a joke taking it on in that film. But in this film, it's just she just she just automatically feels like she's well. I'm with this really guy who's got shitloads of money, and this is what's expected of me. Yeah. I think that's that's where the uncomfortable thing is because she's she's going along going, well, if I want the nice car, the nice clothes, these are the things I've got to do. Yeah. Well, in essence, that means she's just a more of a slightly glorified prostitute. Prostitute. And it's just like I said, it's just a weird it's not an explicit scene. No. It's just not it's just not it's just a maybe because you've seen it from our modern view that you watch it and you think it's just really weird that scene, isn't it? It's just a weird it's just a weird... Like I said, if she would have been doing it to save a life that in, she knew she's got to keep a bit, you know, a bit longer. But it just comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? It just brings it up all of a sudden. It does as well. And also for the fact that because you had the van scene earlier on where there was another woman in the van and they have sex. Again, Oliver Reed's character doesn't participate in this. It's another one of those uncontrollable things where, I've got to be honest with you... I, they're doing it, he's doing it in front of his mate. So, yeah. and Oliver Reed looks across, and there they are. And, you know, to me, that, I mean, that, some people may say it's prudish. I don't know. I don't want to see your mate. You know what I mean? It's just not, it's just not on, is it? No. Yeah. So, ruining his bath time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I love the thing with Frank Finn when Marty turns up, the way he's going, Well, are you, woman? You on the phone again? Blah, blah, blah. And he's going, Right, we've got to get packed to that. And the fact that you know that's sitting up there just waiting yeah. for turn up and it's a wonderfully i mean again i don't know what you think but i love the 70s decor in this oh, yeah i was gonna say just mind you being a kid didn't it bloody deep deep pile carpet yeah yeah it's just i just like the look of it in it like loads of like modernist furniture that just looked out of place but it looks good yeah load of plastic yeah loads of plastic. those kind of lava lamps uh, yeah those kind of s-shaped chairs where yeah. you want them which I've actually, I've actually been on one of them. You know, when I was in Australia, uh, my apartment had one overlooking uh-huh. um, um, the, the sea, and it was beautiful to sit on there. Just, I mean, you could, you could read a book on it and stuff like that. But and then, and you think, oh, these, this is opulence. All the budget probably went on that room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Room, I think. Weird how he dies though. They, they end up, just, he ends up falling down the stairs. They push him down the stairs, and he dies down the stairs, and they don't shoot him. Do they don't shoot him? No. No. Nah. So. You find out as well that Harry has got a load of money stashed. This is a £2,000. And it's hidden in the old Hippodrome. Uh, I do like that little scene where he does a little bow in front of the... the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Question, though, right? It's an old old theatre. Was it old when he hid the money? Maybe. It's been five months since he's been inside. What's the danger of it being knocked down? I'm going to say, yeah. That? Yeah, that's it. Like I said, you'd love to see like another film... About the robbery, wouldn't you? Like, see, not yeah. now. If that film came out now, they'd probably do a prequel to it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see all that. You what? Pre-credit sequence. Yeah, like a pre-credit. You'd do that, wouldn't you, where you're showing him maybe doing that. So, yeah, you're right. How did he get there? What did he, was he chased? Yeah. Was the robbery next door? You don't know anything, do you? No, you don't know, you don't know anything. There's nothing to give you any kind of inclination of, what, of what's going on. Um we now get to be where that he's going to shoot her uh, through the scope. Um, he's determined to do it. So him and Birdie are there. He sets up his again. We've already said that there's no there's no way this. this... That's about a five thousand yard shot, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about? I mean, the sh- the shooting scene. They they cause the explosion so that everyone looks out the window. I think it's a pretty shocking shot when you see it go through her forehead. Yeah, it does, yeah. It, it does hit a straight bang on in the forehead. It's a cracking shot. 
there's a slight clock with a commentary bit there, I think. Where you, and, and again, you find out in a minute where you look at it because is that a dummy? Because yeah. you're not too sure because it's so quick and it all goes off then. And then Birdie ends up kicking Harry. He shoots a civilian, which yeah. is like, but for, for again, because he said he didn't want to kill anybody, he shoots a civilian who goes, Oh, what are you doing? And then he legs it. Birdie jumps in the car, and then you find out that Pat is the one in the car. And yeah. this is the whole twist. Now, yeah. you find out as well that the woman who got shot was a policewoman pretending to be her. So you've got another cop killed, you've got a civilian killed. Yeah. When did they plan all this? Yeah. When I when, think. Yeah, you've got to. I think this bit of the film, you've got to suspend your your disbelief for it because there's no way you could <laughs> meticulously plan all this like this, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Not, you're right. When do they when do they ever plan this thing? Because they couldn't have done it when they're in prison because she yeah. wouldn't have been able to come and see Birdie in prison. Well, there is a line right when she's talking to the Iwawa character. Yeah. She turns around. You you find out that she lost the baby with Harry, didn't she? Yeah. Right. And that's when she turned around and goes, I, I just kind of kept with him because he was there. I didn't love him. She's pregnant. She turns around and says that her boyfriend had ran off. No, so goes, oh, no, he disappeared, didn't he? Yeah. It's him. It's Birdie. He's the one who's got her pregnant. Yeah. Right. And the reason why he's disappeared, he's in prison. He's in prison, yeah. I reckon this has been going on. She's yeah. probably still been visiting him in jail, but not Harry, but been visiting Birdie. Oh, so, right. Yeah, because there's no way you'd be able to plan this in prison, was it? Well, no. Oh. Unless they planned it before they went down. I, got, I, see, I don't know. But like I said, you're right, because that scene's not mayhem at the end, and it's fucking bloody mayhem, isn't it? Yeah, you get a, you get a really cool uh, car chase at this point, and, and going through, you know, on bikes and doing all this. Uh, unfortunately, the film lets itself down by using some very dubious green screen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, as well... How many Jeeps was it around in that time? I just can't imagine there's that many Jeeps, was that? No. It's a plastic Jeep as well, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And who leaves and... the keys in them? Who leaves the keys in the car in the 70s? You would not leave your car keys in a car in the 1970s. He'd be no. gone. No, no, no. Especially a Jeep as well. So you've got, <laughs> you've got a Ford on the run. You've got the Jeep chasing them. Um, clearly, as well, it's Oliver Reed driving that Jeep. That's definitely, definitely. not a that not too sure about the Ian McShane, he probably would be a stomach because they got a woman in the car, so you'd have a fear, you know, probably two stuntmen, I should think, more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, didn't see any dummy shots, which is always good. <laughs> Nothing worse than seeing a dummy as a passenger. <laughs> what do you reckon about the whole thing at the end? Then, when you get McShane running, Harry shoots him, the money goes everywhere. I think that's a classic shot that is, but then Harry getting in the car. Oh, no, it's a really bleak ending, isn't it? Oh, god, it's amazing. You thought, right, he was going to pick the money up. Go back, she's dead, include on it, and then get away. Yeah, take the money. Does he? Does he, 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 no. he knows. Yeah. He's nice and a brilliant ending, but it's a bloody bleak. The 70s were such a bleak time, weren't they? Also, he doesn't seem to be to- awfully shocked the fact that Jill, uh, Patty's still alive. Yeah. He, he's clearly shot her. So he then, you know, I think the whole thing, like you said about him being in the bath and he's, he's looking back on him, like, he doesn't want anyone else to be with her. Yeah, he can't stop loving her. Yeah. Which is really quite a stalkerish attitude to have. It is, it definitely is, isn't it? So he ends up then getting in the car. The car's on fire. He cuddles up to her. Edward Woodward turns up, and then you get the car explosion. And then yeah. it ends. And I think that is amazing. That's what I love about this film. One, the twist, which you do not see coming. Yeah, There's no, no way. Or 
the fact that none of them live, yeah. you know, they're all scumbags, so you shouldn't really want them to live anyway. And the fact that it ends on such a bleak note, but is it a bleak note? I mean, yeah, it's a bleak note because the fact he's killed everyone, he's not a very nice, he's really a not nice guy, but he kind of like, he doesn't want to live without her. Yeah. So it's also, it's also kind of a really weird psychotic love story to this film. Definitely. Like, uh, yeah, like, um, yeah, like I said, he sort of, know, I think he knows when he gets out of prison in that, that I don't know what he thinks he's going to do. Yeah, I think he knows he's probably going to end up killing himself. Mm. I think he knows that because he knows there's nowhere for this film to go. He's getting out of prison for no other reason than to kill her. That's yeah. it, isn't it? That's Which it. is a mad reason to want to get out of prison. Because mm. if he could wait, get the money when you let out later on and then kill her then. But he can't wait, can he? He can't. And I think no. that he knows there's nowhere to go at the end, is there? No, his, pa- his patience is running pretty pretty thin. I mean, but also, you don't, you don't, you, when he first, when he shoots for who he thinks is his wife and we find out it's the copper, you're not one percent sure what his plans are of where they're going to go because they do say, look, we'll get out of the country. But then they know they can't get out of the country because I've done the cop killing, which means Interpol's going to be on top of it. Yeah. But they got 200 grand, which has got to be an equivalent of over a million easily. Got to be. Got to be. Yeah. Or, so they've got the money that they could pay to get out of places. But again, you know, Birdie, Birdie turns on him and stuff like that. So even their idea is going to go. But I think the whole thing of Birdie turning on him is just a beautiful bit of Beautiful bit of writing, really. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's it's based on a novel uh, by Lawrence Henderson. So maybe it'd be be pretty good. I might try and get a hold of that book. Really? Then that'd be interesting if there's more to it, if it's got a bit more meat to the bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that book's by Lawrence Henderson, presumably uh, under the same. same It's got that sort of, like I said, like, like, you know, we've done it, get car out. There was something about then 70s, weren't there, where. Half films just always have really bleak endings, didn't they? Just like that. I suppose it, it's a, the, you know the point is you know you live that life. You're not going to come out of it, are you? Uh, no, I think as well when you think about when these films are done. I mean, Britain was a, a pretty bleak time in itself. You kind of use cinema as escapism. There's yeah. no escapism, is it? Exactly as you said. You, you bang on there with Get Carter because the reason why Get Carter is such a good film is the fact he doesn't get away at the end. No, yeah, Beach. He thinks he's got away with it, and he don't. He gets killed, and yeah. and you kind of and you and, and we get Carter. As we talked about, when we we covered get Carter. That whole film goes around in one circle because his killers on the same train as him. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's kind of like with this one, uh, Harry's killer in essence, Harry's betrayer. He's with him throughout the whole of this film, and it's his friend. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, that, <laughs> and I think you know that's that world of criminality. It's like they always talk about brotherhood of thieves and all these things, but. Oh, if you look at all crime stories, I've been watching that one. Have you been watching one about organised crime? Have you been watching that yet? I haven't watched it. Amazing. It's an amazing TV show. But that shows you, they all turn on each other. Yeah. There's no honour amongst thieves. There's no honour amongst thieves. It's a load of rubbish. No. No. That is a brilliant film. Just made me want to watch it again now. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think what I'm going to do is, we've had the past couple of films that we've done, um, in our new kind of like shake up of everything we're doing, uh, quite a few people have been buying the films since we've been talking about them. So I am going to put, I'm going to start trying to use our Amazon Associates link, which we don't really use anymore, and link it to. So if anybody anybody does buy this film, we'll get a little bit of. It won't cost you anything. But Amazon end up giving us a percentage of. Uh, yeah, look, I think people need to give it a go because you're not going to see it anywhere. It's not going to be on Netflix. <laughs> no, no. Or Amazon. Well, the quality ain't great, is it? So I mean, no, as I said. 
like I said, I don't think it's ever. I don't think I've ever seen it on TV. I, 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 I don't think they'd probably show it on TV anymore, would they? Because of some of the dubious stuff in it. Um, it's not big enough either, really, is it? No, I mean, is it? I think it was a minor film when it came out. It wasn't a big deal, was it? No, yeah, it, it did very well at the box office. That's the thing. It got a limited release, uh, and I think it did well in America. Um, didn't QT say that he put it on his cinema? Yeah, but how the hell? That's mad, isn't it? That we have a film that's like a you know a British film. It takes an American to mm. tell us about watching a British film. And, uh, that's yeah. sort of how crap the, the film industries and industry you know in in Britain is. We don't yeah, talk like about it. ourselves. We don't like talk about our history, do we? Of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, this film came out, it was probably a double, it wouldn't surprise you if it was a double Double feature. And it had probably had some dubious confessions film thrown in it. So, you know, you're only going to get... Imagine though, man, to go see this and get Carter on a double bill. That'd be a pretty amazing double bill. Uh, You'd come out, you'd come out pretty gangster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be brilliant, (laughs) now. Now, now that you've seen this film, would you say this is Oliver Reed's best film out of all the films that he's done? Mm. Do you know? I think it might be Oliver. Still like still Bill Sykes. Yeah, I think it's. I think there's still. Uh, uh, would have watched this or the thing with Oliver. I've saw it too many times in my life, so I can't bear watching it anymore. But would I say? I think as if someone told you the life about Oliver Reed, what it was like, and then showed you this film. This mm. is the perfect Oliver Reed film. Yeah, I, I, I think so because this is. I think this is sort of the career he should have had. He should yeah. have gone on yeah. to do more roles like that instead of being this drunken buffoon that he wanted to play up to, mm. doing any, any old film for money. He should have just thought, no, I'm just going to try and do good films. Because yeah. I think his career would have been very different. Yeah. He might have got more, film, more, more work in America, which I think this is what he should have done. The thing is, he turned down a lot of films in America. Yeah. He shouldn't have done it. He should have gone there because he could have had that great career like Richard Burton and could have been like them. Because people only know Oliver Reed now, Mids, for the stories about Oliver Reed, not his acting. And that's no. a shame, isn't it? I think he I think he turned I don't know this for certain, so I can't I can't say this is a, a proper fact, but I think he turned I think he turned down the role of playing Quint in um Jaws. Uh, because he couldn't he couldn't be bothered one, he couldn't be bothered to fly to America, and two, he said he couldn't think of anything worse than being on a boat. <laughs> stupid thinking, isn't it? Yeah, stupid decisions that you kind of only make when you have had a few too many drinks. Yeah, and that addled his brain really. I think this is his best acted film. I think his range in this is really good. I don't think you've seen him act anything better than that. I, I agree with you as a film wise. I think Oliver is probably better. Yeah, but because it's such a Dickensy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a kind of like set. You know that that Bill Bill Sykes character is he's going to be like that. Um, and then probably obviously he, he came back and, and shone in uh, in Gladiator, but I, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll end up doing another Oliver Reed film somewhere in the in the future. I can't see us not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we might end up. Doing, I know we've talked about it. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to do it in any time soon. But we we did thought about doing character breakdowns. Didn't we have talking about a you know doing a podcast on a uh, actor? Yeah, talking about what we uh, an, an actor both me and you really love and going through them. You know, and it's got to be a good actor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not it's not going to be you know Leslie Grantham or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be crap. Uh, do we know what we're doing next? We do. It's Con Air, isn't it? 
It is Connor. Come on. Right. <laughs> look at your look at your wife in the background looking extremely happy. Yeah. <laughs> the Cliff Cage film. It's going to be ace. Can't wait for yeah. it. Nick Cage high kick. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. Yeah. So that's going to be our our next next recording is going to be about Connor. So if you've got any uh, love for the film or love I'm for sure Nick Cage, I'm sure you have. I'm sure people have. Then you know what to do. Jen's going to give you all the blurb in a bit. Uh, and uh, do get in touch with us. So thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Simon. And I'm Mark. And we'll see you next month. Bye. You've been listening to Waffle On. If you'd like to get in touch or join the mailing list, you can by emailing the guys at waffleonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also have some waffly fun by joining their Facebook page. Simply type in Waffle On Podcast in the search bar and away you go. This has been a Waffle On production. Copyright Simon Meddings and Mark C. Kelly. the last time the man we're about to meet was on the show. How well he remembers it, I can only guess, but I'm, I'm glad that he's accepted my invitation for a return visit. A warm welcome to Oliver Reed. Yes, I do. Very well. Um, uh, yes, I do. I, yes. It was orange juice. It's so it's sad. And I was trying to sing. Yes, I do, actually. I'm a prankster. But I didn't come up the same way as these boys did, and so I have to get away with my nervousness in different ways. And so what I do, everybody expects that I'm going to make a fool of myself or an absolute ass, and so I generally do. That's what I do. So that's what they expected of me, because I've got none of the none of the fine background that these gentlemen have got. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, somebody made the point, in fact, that what is news about the way you were then? Because I mean, if you had behaved like a bank manager, that would have been news. It was actually three years ago, and you just made that film on the desert island, Castaways, wasn't yes. it? And you just made another island film. Yes, I made it a year ago with, uh, strangely enough, um, Chuck Heston playing, um, who was that fella? Long John Silver. Yeah, that's it. And I played, and I played Billy Bones. Captain Billy Bones. That's right. <laughs> but I didn't play him like that. It was very, because Chuck Heston's son was, uh, was directing it, and he was, uh, he came up to Bermans and Nathans, who were the costumers, and they tried to fit you into costumes that, that you can't fit into because they can't afford the big ones, but it's much, much, much easier than breaking them down, you know, new ones. And, so he said, uh, he said, Oliver, um, tell me, kid, how are you going to play this? And I said, I'd like to play him as a Glaswegian thug. <laughs> 
so he said, uh-huh. And uh, Chuck was in the next room, and he said, uh, Chuck Oliver wants to play him as a Glaswegian thug. And Chuck went, Arr. That's all he'd ever do when he was interviewed. And they say, can we hear some of this Cornish? You'd go, Arr. So he says, I want to play him like this. I want he's a real bastard. I want to play him like that. And so Chuck Heston's son looked at me, and he said, uh, Oliver, I said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that in America, they're not going to be able to understand me. But as long as, as long as I make the air move around me, surely that's what matters, isn't it, in cinema. And so he said, yeah, so we did it, and nobody complained. And afterwards, I had to um, revoice him again. <laughs> 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 well, you are, you boist up here. So, in actual fact, I got away with a face, but I put in one or two. We had to moderate it afterwards. What is it now? Like that? Well, no, it's a bit, um, a bit like Sir Richard. Oh. <laughs> He's described as a drunken, cantankerous sailor. Is it difficult to be... <laughs> I think that if you were born in Glasgow in those days and you were probably pressed into the Navy uh, and you were put aboard a privateer or a pirate boat, then you were probably rather annoyed about it or cantankerous. And in order to uh, get over the scurvy, uh, you would suck either limes or uh, splice the main base. You're still enjoying the booze as much as ever? Yes. <laughs> I enjoy the company of people. I remember once, I think I was on your show with Clive Jameson, is that is it, the Australian Clive fellow? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. He, uh, he was about to say, he was about to take your job over and say, tell me, Oliver, why do you drink? And, and I looked at him, I thought, what an ass. <laughs> stupid thing to ask, you know, why do you drink? I drink for the effect. I drink because I like the company of people I meet in pubs. It was my drama school, well, and the army as well. I was in the army, and I think my sergeant major taught me more about drama than I've ever wished to forget, and, or wished to remember. And afterwards, I came out, and uh, when I could afford to buy some beer, I went into a pub, and I didn't go to drama school. My uncle, who was a director at the time, said that you should go to Rada, and you should camp outside directors lawns and a tent and ask them for a job every time they go to the studio in the morning. And that's how you got to get a job. You've got to be enthusiastic. This was Sir Carroll, right? yeah. your uncle. Yes. Yeah, Suggested so you went to RADA, but yes, he did. didn't. No, it didn't. Mm. And uh, uh, because, because to me, uh, the people who were teaching at RADA <laughs> were people that can't do it. <laughs> they might be very good at, at teaching people to speak English, but then I knew how to speak English. I didn't, uh, my grandfather and my father insisted that we should, and I was educated in the South at a school that insisted that we should speak English, so I had to come through it a different way. I had to work through it a different way. So the pubs and the army uh, were were the places that I suddenly rubbed shoulders with people I wouldn't normally have rubbed shoulders with, and I found them a little bit more interesting than the people that I was at school with, so I, I started to emulate them. Plus the fact that uh, at that time, when I left the army in the 50s, um, people were only just getting over the war. There was dear old Jack Hawkins, you know, steady number one, and... And, and had bull cream on their hair <laughs> and lots of medals up and, uh, and then Osborne came about and then room at the top and the angry young men and I thought, God, 
Blimey, that, that actually, I could, uh, I could like to grab some of that. So I immediately started getting into fights in pubs and getting, and as I thought it was the thing to do, that I could emulate them. And then I saw that dear lady that used to run the theatre. Remember the potty one with the hat that used to keep on falling over? <laughs> yes, oh, that's right. And, you know, she, and, I, and, and she was making a film about fighters or something. So I went up there and started pretending there was a, there was a ball there and bosh. <laughs> And uh, she sent me back to the coffee bar where I was serving coffee. Yeah, nothing, but I was emulating, well, that's all. But yeah. I didn't have to learn to speak English. The ironic thing is that your grandfather founded Rada, didn't he? He did, yes. Tree. Mm. Yeah. Beerbaum tree. Yeah. Isn't that so? He must be turning in his grave. <laughs> yes, I suppose he is. He's buried in a... That was a relief, yeah. yeah I was Actually, I was going to dig up Karl Marx once, so you could make a film about that, so it should be. Again, I was in this pub, and some friends of mine, they were Welsh miners, they said, I tell you what, boy, you're... And I said, what, was Taffy Pugh was his name? Is that a Welsh name? Slightly. See, I'm not making it up. And he said to me, he said, why don't we... Uh, and I he was with Mikas Fra, who was a bodybuilder, and therefore could lift the tombstone up. And, I, and we were going to dig underneath it in a tunnel, Welsh miners. Nick, Nick the geezer, and then to sell him to the Russians. <laughs> then we thought that was too risky because the Russians had too many tanks. So then we thought we were going to dress ourselves up as painters and go and paint those lions outside Waterloo Station, you know, by the bridge there. We were going to paint those and put up and make ourselves look efficient and official. But we didn't do that either. You never wanted to work in the theatre? There was a time when I would have liked to have worked in a budgerigard cage. <laughs> but uh, some people say I have. <laughs> Certainly worked in the Nick. But uh, the, uh, when the opportunity arose, I, I, I uh, wasn't good enough. I, I couldn't project my voice. Because uh, one of the great heroes in my life was Jack Palance. And I think, wow, that's wonderful, because everybody was still saying, standing on the one, and carrying on the And I thought that was wonderful, or Jimmy Dean, or Marlon Brando. Wonderful characters. Real mumblers. Yeah, so I, so I started to mumble, and it was no good for, for theatre. So I've been offered a lot of theatre since, usually in musicals, having made Tommy. Uh, uh, I can't sing or add up or spell, I can't do anything, so they've given up the idea of theatre, so they allow me to mumble. You like people in pubs, do you like your fellow actors as a breed? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't, I mean, it's, I get on very well with them, and when we work, they're lovely. And I wouldn't be as effusive as Sir Richard, and burst into tears every time I saw them. <laughs> And then I say goodbye, and I never actually say goodbye. I sometimes just walk out of the studio without saying a word. Because you're going to meet again on another set somewhere. I don't go out of my way, certainly go out of my way to be rude to them. Unless, <laughs> unless they got a different shape to me. But uh, that was in the old days. No, I, I don't mix with actors. I mean, there are people that love that kind of thing, and there are people like me who prefer the company of artisans. I mean... 
Peter the Great did, didn't he? He was known as Peter the Carpenter when he came over here to learn to build his navy, the Russian navy. And he was known as Peter the Carpenter. And when it came abroad that he was, uh, he was in London, people used to throw pips at him. I do love you two. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I didn't go to Rada. I don't have this back, background that they have. It's interesting how your looks determine your career. Yours, of course, is, is violence, isn't it, Oliver? <laughs> and you were stuck with the ever useful label. Yes, yes. <laughs> As he said, crying most of the time. <laughs> no, you, you do tend to wear your heart on your sleeve. Do you mind people remarking on that all the time? No, not at all. Right. Uh, what about spitting image? Do you like that? Uh, I not laugh very much, because they were talking to Roy Hattersley about him spitting cake everywhere. And he, he was the other day, and you're always, I think you're wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Actors, actors have to have their emotions available. And it's a part of our performance. And uh, I am an emotional person. Uh, my kids make me cry sometimes when I see somebody being very brave or um, self-effacing. Or I, I find it moving. I don't find it embarrassing that I cry sometimes. But I, I don't cry anything like as much as I appear to on Spitting Image. <laughs> the role you're still playing in real life, that people said but not last, is, is of husband. Yeah. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for the last time. Yes, yes. It's not a role I would uh, want to play again. I'm uh, deeply, uh, deeply fond of my wife. Excellent. And as we're talking about the <coughs> softer side, you, you've adopted a dog. Oh. How do you know about him? I was told. Yeah. I was playing a general in Italy, and the Italians love their ham rolls. Uh, the prosciutto ham they put in it. And it's I nothing to do with dogs, is it? <laughs> because they used to eat the ham and throw the, the bread rolls on the floor. And uh, before I could get to them, being a starving actor. <laughs> before I could get to them, we were both diving, and this dog snatched it away. And the star, one of the stars of this movie was a dog. Uh, and so he was going around, he had shampoos and medals all over him, and people used to brush and comb him. And I suddenly saw this thing like that, covered in all sorts of things that the dogs are covered in. No, didn't have any. Oh, God. No, all sorts yeah. of, his hair was dropping out. He was very tucked up and he was in bad order. So I put him in my caravan. An Italian came in and said, hey, bah, 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 bah. Maybe some Italians watching, so I won't say what they said. But what they were explaining to me was that the caravan was simply on hire. And the next day we were going to go inside the studio and the caravan would be hired out. And this dog had fleas and he probably had other things. And so would I get him out into the rain again. So uh, I said to him, I looked at my wife, my wife looked at me, and I said, do you want to swap? Yeah. <laughs> and so we sent him off to an Italian hospital, and now he's uh, in, a, in a home in uh, Guernsey until July the 4th, when he's going to come over to... No, it's not in Guernsey, he's in Surrey. Then he comes over to Guernsey, and uh, I hope doesn't chase the cattle, and I hope he doesn't... Uh... Well, it's lovely to hear this story. I'm going but... to cry. Yes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
it's now time to go home, gents. Um, don't forget, I must remind our viewers, if you want to ring up the inner London code changes to 071 after midnight, told you that. Many thanks. Good to see you again. Oliver Reed. I'll be back next Saturday, but Sir Richard and I are off across London to a rather special party, which some will be able to see later tonight. See you soon.